everybody. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my fantastic co-host, Sarah Marshall. Today, we're going to be talking about the movie Practical Magic with our friend Sampreeti Ireland. But first, I have a couple of things to tell you. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. Folks who support us on Patreon get bonus episodes. So by helping us uh, make this whole thing possible, you also get to hear even more of us. So thanks. Thanks for doing that, Patreon supporters. We appreciate you. Also, You Are Good is made possible with support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And finally, we make playlists that accompany each of our episodes, playlists that are inspired by our conversation about the movie and by the movie itself. You can find that in the show notes. So look for that there. All right. Like I said earlier, we are talking about Practical Magic with our friend Sampreeti Ireland. Practical Magic, of course, is a 1998 American fantasy romantic comedy. It's based on the 1995 novel of the same name by Alice Hoffman. The film was directed by Griffin Dunn, which we will talk quite a bit about. And the screenplay is by Robin Swickard. Akiva Goldsman and Adam Brooks. Practical Magic stars Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman, Stockard Channing, Diane Weist, Aidan Quinn, this is a robust conversation. I was really glad that we were able to have it with Sam Preeti. We had a great time and we covered all sorts of bases, therapeutic, otherworldly, ethereal, and otherwise. So I'm so glad that we get to share this with you now. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to You Are Good. You are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I do not know how witches greet each other. I know how they say goodbye. They say, when shall we three meet again? But I don't know how they say hello. Well, I'll just take that then. I'll take trying to figure out how to greet as a greeting. It's a very post-postmodern situation. <laughs> yeah, that's our thing. <laughs> what are we doing today? We are talking about practical magic with my most magic friend, Graham by Graham, for sure, the most magic person I know. Who is that? Who are you? <laughs> Let's see. Today, I am Simpriti Ireland, and I am so happy to be here with you two today. We make a very magical number of three, don't we? We sure do. Yes. We're a very strong triangle. The last time we were magically a three, we talked about the magic number 10. <laughs> in the context of 10 things I hate about you. Yes. And now we're talking about the magic number practical. Yes. <laughs> Sampreeti, tell us how you've been. I've been good. It's been good Lord. That was 2020 when we recorded. Was it 2020? It was 2021. It was February or March. Okay. And I know this because I just looked back to see when we recorded with you because I was like, oh, you're our springtime gal. Yay. You're like raw first days of spring. <laughs> Robin. Oh, I've been great. I think I've been a microcosm as we tend to do of like what's going on collectively in that it's just been a lot of healing and a lot of trying to figure out what my normal is and does normal even exist. So yeah, basically for the last year, it's been like an existential crisis month by month, but I've been managing very, very well. What about you guys? Does that, does that resonate? Mm. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I feel like I was in, I guess, a really nice headspace as I was going to bed last night that I wanted to kind of preserve and remember, which that I was just like, I'm trying to practice like very aggressive self-love. Mm. The thing I figured out in the past year has been that like, I really don't know what I think of myself. I guess go around asking other people what they think of me. And then I base my sense of self on the most recent interaction I've had. So you can imagine that's stressful. <laughs> How did your aggressive self-love go in the face of that? Well, okay. We're going on a little journey. There is this millennial love to hate her type internet character named Caroline Calloway, who everyone has been fascinated by for three years now. And it's a whole saga. You can get into it. Her basic thing is like being a, a very rich fuck up of the kind that I once went to Bennington with and also kind of getting away with more stuff than 
most human beings can because she's rich and looks like Sienna Miller. Mm. So I learned on the internet late last night that she has finally moved out of her famous apartment. And I was like feeling feelings about it. And people were talking on social media about how she like had a bunch of parties and left the place totally trashed. And it was like so disgusting. And how could a human being so ir- be so irresponsible? So obviously I was like, hey, leave her alone. It could have been me. <laughs> like it hasn't been yet, but it could have and it could still. And I was thinking about that and about like, what if, isn't it weird that we live in a world where like you can become the object of intense online bullying for like leaving your apartment really trashed when you move out, which like sucks is a thing to do, but like, whatever. It's not like murder. (laughs) And I was like, you know what, Sarah, even if that kind of thing happens to you, which we're all obviously afraid of now, like I'll still love you. Me loves you no matter what. (laughs) And it was just incredibly Mm. affirming. And I guess fell asleep Mm. having my cookie monster thoughts. Oh, that's nice. I like that being a cookie monster thought. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't it feel like when you're doing that, that you're engaging an actual muscle. Yes. It's like something that you have to get physically involved with. Like I'm lifting a two ton weight in order to get to that place of self-love. And like, you don't know it's there until it's sore. Yes. Hmm. And you're a Pisces moon, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It's been a minute. (laughs) Yeah. You're a Pisces moon. I'm a Pisces moon too. And right now, We're having a bunch of transits in Pisces, like everything is in Pisces almost right now. And we're being slammed with not only like the big questions and the mysteries and the mysteriousness of life, but also how we have been kind of deluding ourselves or under the the illusion that we are actually one way when we are in fact all of the ways, right? We're all kind of waking up to this Hmm. thing, thinginess of like, Hey, I thought I was the person who just couldn't do shit. Mm. And I'm like waking up to the point, like, no, I'm just dealing with trauma. I'm just healing trauma and trauma can be healed. And that means that I'm not necessarily doomed to not be able to do this shit for the rest of my life. It's just a section. And I think right now, especially for those of us who have Pisces placements, it's very personal. And it's like almost muscular, like we're almost feeling it move through our bodies with the decisions that we make in how we treat ourselves. Good work. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, and I'm, I'm an astrologer. <laughs> yes. And a damn fine astrologer, I have to add. Thank you. Sir, do you want to tell us about this movie and what we're covering, how it unfolds? I suppose so. Okay. So <laughs> Practical Magic is a 1998 film directed by Griffin Dunn, our favorite little guy. (laughs) Our favorite little guy. Griffin, if you're listening, open invite anytime. We love you so much. We love you. We talk about after hours all the time. And we feel like after hours all the time. We talk about you, the Dunns. We talk about all of it all the time. John Didion. But mainly you, the funniest Dunn. (laughs) By a long shot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I will contend that Joan Didion was sometimes very funny, but you really had to, you know, you had to show up to the party and really linger a while, (laughs) metaphorically. You had to get there. (laughs) Yes, you have to show up for that. (laughs) Practical Magic stars Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock as two sisters, Jillian and Sally, who are raised by their two aunts, great aunts, unclear, played by Stockard Channing and Diane Wiest, giving beautiful like Tim Burton, James and the Giant Peach, ants in an intense Victorian house that in this kind of movie non-setting feels like it's supposed to be in Massachusetts because we open with a witch trial, but is obviously in the Pacific Northwest. So whatever. Yeah, she, they say at some point they're going to go to Logan. So they are, they go to Logan Airport oh, at some point. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, so I think it's supposed to be, but you're right, it's not. What if it's the Logan Berry Airport in Oregon <laughs> that I guess invented? <laughs> I, oh my God, I, my mind was blown. Everyone saw my face just melt <laughs> off my body. I was like, what? Yeah, they mentioned Logan at some point, which is their obligatory okay. New England nod outside of just witch death. It is so un-New Englandy, this movie. It's incredible. It really is. <laughs> 
And I don't think it's trying to be fair. So like, it's not a complaint. It's just, we'll get there. We'll talk about it. It just isn't. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just everything these people are doing is utter nonsense. And so, you know, it doesn't really make sense. It's everything all the time. <laughs> so we learn an exposition delivered by Stockard Channing, which is how most exposition should be delivered, that the women in this family are descended from their original ancestor, Aunt Maria, who survived a hanging because she was accused of being a witch and was a witch and got the rope to break when they tried to hang her. And then they were like, we're still banishing you, though. And so they banished her to an island where she asexually spawned a line of witches. And... <laughs> she was knocked up <laughs> well no she was oh yeah that's why she was hanging but then who did that baby have a baby with where are the men coming from oh it was like the garden of eden i think she had twins and then like they had to spawn and then it kept going no i'm just kidding yes that but like <laughs> but i'm I sure agree. that like some like whaler like happened by and like saw the daughter and fell in love with her and then died right because maria has placed a curse on herself and her family that she doesn't ever want to experience the pain of love again hmm. and so this creates the belief in the family that anytime one of the women falls in love with a man he will die eventually which I guess all of them do. <laughs> yes, true. I like the take, though, on it wasn't originally a curse, right? right? It was a spell. It was self-protection. But she was so emo. <laughs> she was so emo <laughs> that it imbued the music with a different genre and it was a curse from there on out. <laughs> That's so true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so then we cut forward to our little baby versions of Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock are orphaned when... The curse comes true for their mother. Her mother hears the death watch beetle and she's like, ah, fuck. And then her husband dies and then she dies of a broken heart, which is a phrase mm -hmm. we hear a lot in stories for children and not in adult media so much. And I really think we should, you know, because often the paper is like died of opioid addiction. And it's like, but perhaps it was really a broken heart mm -hmm. or something. <laughs> and so as children, Jillian, the red haired Nicole Kidman one wants to have big feelings and can't wait to fall in love. And she watches a lovelorn woman come to the aunt's house and kill a dove, I think, <laughs> to cast a love spell so that this totally like tuna melt looking guy who we see a picture of will love her back. <laughs> tuna melt Larry, that's him. And so Jillian is like, I can't wait to fall in love. And Sally, who is showing a lot more promise as a witch at this point is like, I never want to fall in love. And so she does a spell so that she will fall in love with this very specific guy. The idea being that he can't possibly exist. And so she'll be safe. Okay, mm. great. Cut ahead. They're late teens played by 35 year olds. <laughs> Jillian is running away with her boyfriend and Sally is like, not having it. And then the ants, we eventually learn, cast a love spell on her so that she will fall in love with a local guy who sells apples. He's the apple man. Hot apple man. Hot apple man. <laughs> he's the apple of her eye. Yeah. The, <laughs> yes. Apple pie guy. And he's played by the ophthalmologist who Miranda once faked <laughs> orgasms <laughs> with in Sex oh, and City. <laughs> I believe season two. Yes. So he and Sally fall in love. They have two little girls. This movie is like a generational succession of duos. And every generation, there will be two sisters. And one will have red hair and one will have black hair. And then one day, Sally hears a Death Watch beetle and he dies. And then Jillian comes home from her whatever she's been doing to comfort Sally and be like, you got to get the fuck out of bed and brush your teeth so you can parent your girls and not die of a broken heart like our mom did. And then she goes back to her situation, which is that she's shacked up with the guy from ER who is playing a character named Jimmy Angelov. Yes. Jimmy the vampire, kind of. Jimmy the vampire. This guy is bad fucking news. <laughs> the vampire cowboy. Very 90s. Yes. 
This guy is like when you're reading a Reddit post and someone's like, hi, I'm 22. My boyfriend's 34. I support (laughs) him. I make him breakfast and lunch every morning. And I love our relationship. And he's such a great guy, but he won't let me go to the bathroom by myself. Am I the asshole for wanting to go to the bathroom by myself? Are we supposed to take away that he does have some supernatural element? And the only reason I ask is... She at some point says that like through his intensity, which is just abusive storm intensity through his intensity, it ensures that he can survive the spell. Hmm. So I didn't know if like that would like, and he's from Transylvania. (laughs) She says that he's strong enough to survive the curse. That's it. And I think Hmm. that there's like this thing that happens where you can either be strong in a light way or strong in a dark way. And he exhibits Mm -hmm. that dark strength. Like she almost like she had to fuck a vampire in order to get this curse broken. That that was my takeaway from it. Hmm. And if it's Hot Doc, original McSteamy from ER, Goran Vizhnich. That's the first time I've ever said his name out loud. It sounded good. I'd fuck a vampire if it, if it looked like him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my default position towards vampires is positive feelings, which may or may not be good. <laughs> I don't know. They generally just seem, again, emo, and like they mostly want to just talk about their feelings Mm. okay but so jilly goes back to her scene with jimmy angel of the vampire cowboy and then she calls sally being like hey things are fucked up and so sally comes to get her and jimmy kidnaps both of them and is like in the back seat drunkenly talking about louis l'amour which is, I don't know, I guess really love that scene. And once again, Sandra Bullock is in a movie driving in a stressful situation, being like, Louis L'Amour was from North Dakota. <laughs> the way she yells at him, just get you to shut up and drive this that. car off the <laughs> I laugh at that every time. <laughs> She's so good at driving under duress. And so basically, Jillian has been slipping Jimmy Belladonna to get him to sleep a little bit so that she can have alone time. We've all been there. (laughs) And Sally slips some into his beverage so that he will pass out and they can get unkidnapped. (laughs) And then they can't wake him up. And they're like, well, fuck, it looks like we killed the bastard. And so they get him back to their aunt's house on an island, by the way. So, like, did they have to, like, get on a ferry with a corpse in their car? Yeah, they, they probably had to call the water taxi. And they were like, <laughs> what is this? And they were like, you don't have to worry about it. He's it's, dead drunk. Maybe they did a little, <laughs> this is not the droid you're looking yes. for situation. And then they went on. They went on. That's true. They're witches. Yeah, <laughs> probably wouldn't take much out of these townies. So. Sarah, that is a great point that I had not considered. <laughs> Neither had I until this moment. And then you're like, yeah. wait a minute. But like, it just goes to show that like screenplays don't have to make sense. Movies don't take place in a world where these kind of concerns have to exist. So, you know, I'm for it. Real life, there's so much logistics, I can't stand it. Most people are like me when they watch a movie and are pretty dumb. Right. Me too. I'm purposefully dumb. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. like, I'm just shutting off my logical brain <laughs> and I am immersing myself in this world that somebody wrote for me. That's right. And like, if I wanted to think about how to get the corpse on the ferry, I would think about my own life. <laughs> so they get him back to the aunt's house and we know from something Sally talked about after her husband died that like, it is possible to basically bring back someone from the dead, but they will be, you know weird it's cemetery like mm-hmm. yes exactly also buffy rules yeah necromancy right just don't fuck with it but they're mm-hmm. like okay well we kind of have to bring this guy back to life because he didn't have the greatest personality to begin with and we don't want to go to prison and so they start doing the bring back to life spell and then it turns out that he isn't dead and he is my interpretation because they don't finish the spell and he like wakes back up and then immediately starts trying to strangle Nicole Kidman. So then they have to kill him for real and then bury him in the yard. And then at this point, tonally, it feels like this is where you can start feeling maybe too many cooks. And I love this movie and I think it's perfect, but it suddenly becomes a romantic comedy in a really weird way. Mm -hmm. Griffin Dunn said on a number of occasions that he's like, 
every time things got tonally strange, the intervention by the studio was like, yeah, we got to soften the edges. We really yeah. have to soften the edges, soften yeah. those edges. And then like, yeah, it feels like at some point they overcorrected and they were like, let's just make it a romantic comedy. Like that would, let's do that. It yeah. just becomes a romantic comedy. It's incredible. It makes me feel like if somebody watched <laughs> Thelma and Louise and was like, you know what? I would love a version of this where Susan Sarandon and Harvey Keitel get together and then we end with a voiceover about how great their relationship is. <laughs> That's perfect. I would too, but not in the no, movie. No, make a different movie. <laughs> Write some fanfic. Right. Yes. So then the back half of this movie basically becomes a romantic comedy because they've killed this guy and then a prosecutor's office investigator played by Aiden Quinn comes looking for him and also Sandra Bullock wrote a letter to her sister before all this shit with Jimmy went down it's important and so he's like investigating them they're freaking out it turns out that he doesn't want to get them in trouble so much as Jimmy is like at least a budding serial killer so he's trying to like find him to question about something he goes around town and you know gets the skinny on how everyone in town hates them because they're witches, even though they have this like crab tree and Evelyn looking shop that appears to be doing fine mm -hmm. and spending a lot of money on packaging. And <laughs> then basically he's like, I'm going to do you a solid and let this Jimmy thing go because Sally is like, Jimmy's spirit is haunting us. And he's like, okay. And then Jimmy's spirit appears, made out of very expensive CGI. And Aiden <laughs> Quinn thinks that he's banished the spirit with his sheriff's badge, which I don't know why he has, which works for a little while. And he's like, I'm out of here. I'm not going to arrest you. That was weird. Bye. And then it turns out that Jimmy's spirit actually is possessing Nicole Kidman. And so the witch family women need to get all the women in town who hate them to come over and have a coven, which they all do. And they're like, I've wanted to see inside this house forever. I'm into it. And then they exercise Nicole Kidman. And so she gets exercised, girl power. And then we play a Stevie Nicks song and Aiden Quinn comes back to town. And he's like, all right, Sandy, let's do this thing. And also, I'm the guy who you did the love spell on when you were a kid. And I was real the whole time. Here I am. It's me. The end. Fall in love whenever you can. I like when she realizes she starts to put it together because she sees that he has two a green and blue eye. And that's one of the things that she asked for. And she goes, a green and blue eye. And then she walks out of the room and you hear him go, I was born this way. <laughs> Like, what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> when you were watching this again this morning, Alex, you kept te you texted me like at least twice. Like you were like, Aiden Quinn is the romantic lead in this. I just can't get over it. <laughs> but I was like, I, I guess my problem is that my entire context for who Aiden Quinn is, is that I think of him as the guy from Practical Magic. So like, who even is Aiden Quinn? Yeah. I think of him as the guy in Benny and June. Oh, oh my God. Which is so good. And he's so, I don't know if it's good. I want to take that back. It, evoked big feelings in me at like 10 years yeah. old a lot so i there's that and then but also he's just like is anthony quinn so like Aiden. i i just can't help but like see him be this like timeless being yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's just always been right I, I mean he's great in this i guess but like he's just like not i don't want to say aiden quinn's not an actor but he's just aiden quinn he just wields his aiden quinn around yeah throughout this whole time and then sandra bullock really sells the relationship i guess she really does a lot of heavy lifting on Aiden's behalf. She is threading that needle so hard. My God. They've got some good chemistry, though. That was a pretty nice makeout scene. Yeah. That was yeah. good. Sam Pretty, why did you bring this one to us? Oh, my gosh. Actually, Sarah, I was in the woods dragging my kids on a hike that was too difficult for them. And we were resting and I got this text from Sarah like, hey, you want to come on You Are Good and you want to do Practical Magic? And I literally started jumping up and down and laughing. And because this <laughs> is one of my most favorite movies and it's one of my most favorite movies to talk about because kind of like 10 Things I Hate About You, I experienced it when it came out and now revisiting it 
good God, 20 years, some odd years later, every time that I have watched Practical Magic again, I've been encountering it as a different person, right? I've been encountering it with Hmm. different areas of my life and it has always stuck. The thing that came across in the biggest way was that this is the sweetest, bubbliest movie about generational trauma (laughs) that I think Mm. ever Mm. was. And it didn't hit me until like last week. And as we wake up to, you know, racial realities, wake up to patriarchal and misogynistic realities, wake up to indigenous realities and all the, the pain and trauma that it is not just our issue to help heal these things. It's, they are issues that show up in our lives. They're issues that show Mm. up in our bodies. They're issues that show up in our relationships, meaning trauma doesn't really color inside the lines. And so I like having a beautiful, bubbly, romantic comedy slash pet cemetery (laughs) that kind of gives us a bit of a, a loose framework on, Hey, You dealing, here's a little PSA, you dealing with, you know, generational trauma, here's something that you can do about it. You can engage with it. You can engage your community. You need help with it. It's okay because now's the time. Mm -hmm. That was my biggest takeaway from it in viewing it in these, you know, past couple of weeks. But I, I like that it's also a snapshot into the lives of the modern day that are reckoning with the pain and the decisions Mm-hmm. of their elders and of their ancestors and of the generations before them. Like we can't control the decision-making of our parents, of our grandparents, of people 300 years ago. We can, however, reckon with the the trauma that we do hold with us that is a result of those decisions. And even though it's not our quote-unquote fault that a lot of these things are in our reality. It is our responsibility to heal, right? It is our responsibility to help heal some of these things and heal what is like in front of us. And not just banishing the Jimmy, but banishing the curse. Like they weren't even in it to banish the curse. They weren't it to heal the curse or to reverse yeah. the curse. They were in it just to heal the relationship, the be- get rid of the bad boyfriend. But because they came together to help get rid of the bad boyfriend, they were able to undo what the trauma of the first witch, what she incurred. Because as we know, trauma isn't what happens to us. It's our response or reaction to what is happening to us, Hmm. that armor, that pain that we put on ourselves in order to protect ourselves. That's what stays with us. It's not just the the thing that's happening. It's the response. And that gets, that's epigenetics right there. It's interesting because my interpretation, and I realized I forgot to put this in my summary, but my interpretation of the curse where like any man and Owen's woman loves will die because kind of toward the end, Aiden Quinn is like, curses are only real if you believe in them. And my read of that was like, oh, what if there like isn't even a curse or like the curse? Because like if you stop believing in it, then it just stops affecting your life, I get, which like felt real to me about sort of the nature of generational trauma and stories. But I also like the idea that like this is so hopeful a universe that you get a bunch of like bitches to stand in a circle with mops and they can like fix your entire family. Exactly. So I think that like part of beginning the work mm-hmm. is that rhetorical exercise is saying like curses are in words only. But if you're, let's say, 34 yeah. and you've lived your whole life like that curse is real. I'm 33 and 11 twelfths, Alex. <laughs> you're, st- <laughs> you're still, or let's say 38. I'll be 40 next week. <laughs> 40. Let's just, let's do it all. If you've lived your whole life as if the curse is real and you're, you've shaped yourself accordingly, it's going to require more work than just saying so. Because Sarah, to your current interests, the jello has set in the mold. <laughs> 
the fruit is suspended. It can't go anywhere. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And I do think like part of it is examining how much of our reality is is shaped mm. by rhetoric and shaped by you know saying things. Mm. But it's like if you you're kind of like a, I remember going to a number of different discussions where there's like a deep and rich conversation about race and systemic racism going on, and someone a white guy is always like, "But race is just a construct," and it's like, "Yes." but it's a very impactful one. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh my God. Yeah. It's just a concept, but that concept practiced over enough time by enough people, it creates a reality. It creates a consensus. And over a, a few hundred years, it's in our bones. It's in our DNA. And we get to kind of see how organic material, you know, human bodies and brains and belief systems follow this pattern of exactly what you're talking about, how this almost dichotomy of like one person saying, well, that's not real. And the other person saying it's very real to me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, humans can conceive of no reality beyond our own perceptions of reality, which I really sounds a little bit 1960s of me to say no it, it sounds, sounds great. great i love it right <laughs> well i guess as i say the sentence i'm like okay timothy larry but like but seriously <laughs> right because we have this fantasy that like objective truth is graspable by us and like no <laughs> no if we say that one person's reality isn't another person's reality it's like how malleable is that? How can I work with my own reality? And like what you were talking mm. about before with this quote unquote new thing that you're doing, aggressive self-love. Mm. It sounds like you're actively shifting your own sense of reality mm. by bringing in practices that support a belief system that feels good to you. But you can't just wake up one day and say, I love myself un unconditionally. And that's that. Right. Right. It's like the, right. it's like Michael Scott walking into the office and yelling, I declare bankruptcy. It's the exact same. <laughs> yeah. You actually have to put some work behind it as somebody with a checkered past, as we all have. I've, <laughs> I've, You're in good company, I've, my friend. <laughs> I've been really easygoing my whole life, actually. I've just always felt like I really belonged and had something to contribute. And like I was made of the same basically valid human meat as the other beings around me. Yeah. I find that like I've always been healing from something or healing within something or hmm. waiting for the next thing to come up that I can like engage in healing with. And it's just, it seems like everybody's doing that now. And it seems like we're all doing it together in different ways. It's the new millennial trend. Yes. <laughs> let's, write, let's write angry think pieces about it. It really does feel in a lot of ways like the 1920s, <laughs> like in, in the way that people are coming into all sorts of new approaches to the relationship with self and the relationship hmm. with others. Like it really does feel like that in a big way there's the first step which is largely just like not just acknowledging that like your relative perspective is relative to everything that's going on around you but often what you assume is your relative perspective is not actually your perspective mm -hmm. like often what you assume is your relative perspective is you just being in continuous forward motion from the various traumas that came before you generationally and came from you personally and that shaped this idea of the self and sometimes like the first step is just intervening upon the idea mm -hmm. that you are what you assume that you are <laughs> Yes. Because sometimes it's just like reflex, reflex, yes. reflex, like raw, open nerve, open nerve, open nerve, right? Yeah. There's that, which is the acknowledgement. And then there's the like, you know, well, where did all that come from? <laughs> what does it all exist in? Who am I then? And then you do all that work and that's great. And then you still have to live in a world with people at all different levels of their own self-actualization and acknowledgement. So like I, yeah. you know, for a long time, I just assume if I say something and you respond, we're on the same page, but that is not true either because you may be still the raw nerve machine or the perpetual motion machine, or you may be a new version. So it's fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that goes back to what you were saying before, Sarah, is this place that you're in where 
You're not yourself. You're a reflection of who the people you are around and that you didn't say that exactly. But but yeah, like a disco ball. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's like, who am I going to be now? Who am I going to be now? And Alex, to you know, to put those two points together, you are in that place of kind of I call it the free fall where, OK, we've identified that what I was doing, how I was relating to the world, how I was relating to myself. That's not an indicator of my own identity, my own personal desires, my soul's desires, as I would say to a client. It's an indicator of me me reacting to my trauma, reacting to my upbringing, reacting to my world, trying to fit into algorithms that would be most expected by the people around me and therefore the safest for me to be. Right. So Mm -hmm. then you make that choice of like that fucking hard choice of like, do I want to stay in that comfortable place or do I want what is unknown and yet perhaps doesn't hurt as much? I have chosen not to do it that way. I've chosen to experience myself from the inside out, not just from the outside in. And it feels like, you know, how crustaceans, they will, of course you do, Mainer. Um, I know about crustaceans. You know what, you know what crustacean. So let me, crustacean congressperson. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. They shed their shells in order to mold. I was watching a video of a shrimp doing that last night. Yes. And so there's this period of time in between shedding the old hard shell that was mm-hmm. too small and the new shell, like their epidermis or whatever, hasn't formed into an exoskeleton yet. And so they're fucking vulnerable and it's painful. Like, I think they've been able to prove that like they go through a lot of pain every time they molt, but Mm. they still do it because they still have to grow. Wow. And I think that's what we're doing here. If you are growing and you're like, your shell is too tight. You got to just burst out of that shell. It's just going to happen. And like, I feel like the funny thing about growth is, I mean, it's funny because like my, my attitudes about my own growth and by the way, I have a persistent mental image of that one cotton candy looking lobster that they found in Maine that time. Uh, Look yeah, it up. It was very yeah. pretty. Um, the like bluish one? They're beautiful. Yes. Be that lobster. You are you are the cotton candy lobster. Um, you're one in a billion. And <laughs> it annoyed me as a tween when people would say one in a million because I was like, well, the population of China is already a billion. So that means there's a lot of people <laughs> like me there. But I, I do like my attitudes about my own growth tend to be either like faster. Why aren't I done with this? Why am I here? Why is this happening? No, it's like you think that you're like checking in for a flight at the airport and you keep Mm -hmm. blacking out and waking up at the bag drop. And you're like, how? I was supposed to be at Qdoba by now. And then alternatively, stop, stop happening. No, slow down. This is stop. It feels like it's either happening too fast for my internal clock where I'm like, why am I being shown so much stuff about myself that I can technically understand, but is like being handed something very heavy and large. Mm-hmm. It's like you're at a party and someone gives you a toddler and they're like, okay, bye. And you're like, all right. Well, that all is so resonant because like, no matter how much one of your podcasts unofficial mottos is it was capitalism all along, but it's still a point of trauma, the expectation mm-hmm. of, you know, quarterly growth, right? Like still the expectation is yeah. like, fix it now. You're mm-hmm. never going to fix it fully. You're going to get into the new suit. <sighs> the new suit is not prepared for your current situation. You're going to develop time for a new suit. Like it will always be this way. And then hilariously, we will die. <laughs> And then we will get eaten by some family from Lowell, Mass, who's on a long weekend in Booth Bay Harbor. You know, and then and then one of them just wanted to try lobster and they put it in their mouth like, I don't like it. And they just threw the whole fucking carcass in the trash. (laughs) And then they're like, what's the green stuff? And you're like, it's my trauma. But the benefit, the reason I don't find that sad is that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, as, like I've heard this metaphor in any number of different ways, but like, you know, Ram Das talks about it. Like I was born into the suit and then at some point I kept growing in the wrong directions in the suit. And then I was just suddenly very uncomfortable and bound by this suit. And like most people never pursue another suit or pursue getting out of it or pursue whatever. Mm-hmm. And they, mm-hmm. they die, just die 
in an uncomfortable suit. Yep. And so the benefit, even if right. it's you don't have a full new suit or you're you're found naked at some point, not even in this, whatever the things are, the benefit is the glory and the blessing of having had some opportunity and self-awareness to try to find something that is not what was prescribed. Yeah. Oh, snaps. Or having lobster <laughs> friends that helped you find like the good bottom of the seafood yeah. that let you grow into a bigger lobster. <laughs> yes. Can I ask Sam Friedrich, since this is something you're very interested in, we're talking about this movie or whatever. Can you talk to, about some of the plot points that represent a lot of the things that we're talking about here? So that people aren't just like, why am I listening to these people have therapy? Like, what happened? <laughs> What what podcast am I listening to? It's called to? Trauma and a Movie. We should have called it that. <laughs> oh, you're right. Perfect title, what we have now. But it, I anyway, yes. Connect this all to Practical <laughs> Mac. <laughs> Here I go. Here I go. So the first thing that I wanted to bring up was that there was a book. The movie came out in 1998. The book written by Alice Hoffman. She's written a bunch of other stuff, kind of interweaving these similar characters. Some listeners, by the way, are so happy you've brought up the book. When we omit <laughs> that it was based on a book, people lose their fucking minds. So thank you <laughs> for connecting it to the book. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. It was also, Alex, this was the first grown-up book I ever read any of. I read like the first two mm -hmm. chapters or something when I was eight and then immediately lost yeah. interest when the main characters became adults. <laughs> that makes sense. So you and I are, are twinsies with that. Hmm. I came to the book after I came to the movie. The book was written by Alice Hoffman in 1995. And I actually started listening to the book in preparation for this podcast because I can't sit down and read things mm -hmm. anymore with any ease. I have to listen <laughs> to things. And so I got through the first two chapters and I stopped listening. I had to deal with like a lot of my perfectionism and, and all of that with that. But I was like, no, I'm making the choice to stop listening because I'm not enjoying this. Mm -hmm. And why am I not enjoying this? The book, there's no curse. There's no spell mm -hmm. in the beginning. There's no curse. There's relatively no magic and there's not really a lot of love. And I read up a lot about the book and a lot of folks were saying that they enjoyed the book more than the movie because it definitely was more practical, right? <laughs> you pick up something called practical magic and half of the people are going to be there for the practical part. And the other half of the people are going to be there for the magic part. <laughs> I like that breakdown. You can't underestimate <laughs> yeah. the American consumer. Yes. <laughs> I'm a very practical person. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I, I'm here for the magic, obviously, but mostly it was, I'm here to the story for the love and the relationships were definitely more complex and not that there wasn't love, but it like you had to work to get there. And I'm not in a place right now where I need to be working harder to get to love. I want to <laughs> turn, I want to turn on the movie and I want to receive other people loving each other. Yeah. That's why I don't want to watch euphoria mainly. I'm just <laughs> like, I just, I've been stabbing myself in the eye for 20 years. I don't need to watch teenagers do it right just now. Just walk away. <laughs> Sarah, be honest with everyone. It's because more than two people have suggested you needed to watch it. So you're yes. like sometime in 2035, maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have to wait until I've had children, if that's something I do. And then until they're 30. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also I'm, I'm petty. That's the main, yes, it's the main yeah. thing. But anyway. So plot points that, that reflect this. I love that they begin the movie, which was written by Robin Swickard, who also wrote Little Women, by the way. Oh, oh my God. You can really feel the little women in this, can't you? Yes. 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 The opening scene, the music swelling, and, and we open with a present day witch telling the story of the first witch mm. and the spell that Maria Owens cast in her power. It wasn't on anybody else. It was on herself. The spell was that she would not love again. And that turned into a curse when my take on it is that the spell was working. And so when you cast an intention where, where this ties in with the trauma is you think you're 
like say you're incurring abuse, right? You have an abuser or you have a toxic relationship. You think that you're just surviving, but all of the things that have to be put into play inside of you that you have to kind of command yourself to do mm-hmm. or command yourself to not do. Oftentimes we don't know until way after the fact, if at all, that what we were doing unbeknownst to ourselves was creating our own curse, creating our own armor. And this isn't, this isn't a blame thing. This is an accountability and empowerment thing. And so she, we see it in the movie, we see it happen. And then we cut to when the girls, Jillian and Sally, by the way, I looked this up, Sandra Bullock, who plays Sally is a Leo sun Mm. and a Gemini rising and an Aquarius moon and Nicole Kidman she is obviously a Gemini with a sa- <laughs> obviously a Sagittarius moon and a Scorpio rising, which is fantastic. So of course she looks good with like super Scorpio, Jimmy Angelove, right? Yeah. You know who else is a Gemini? Stevie Nicks. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Gemini's make great movies. Hmm. So when Jilly and, and Sally are are growing up and they come into their, their own adulthood, the way that I encounter the movie is as they mature, they are encountering their choices mm. because they are fated with a curse, but they kind of break out of their meat suit. They make that decision to go find another experience. And through their choice making, they encounter their destiny. And the destiny is that they are able to break the curse. And I love that Hmm. it takes both of them. It takes the blood magic that they started when Jilly, she ran off with the boyfriend and they created that blood magic bond. And Sally reawakened it. She like called on that magic basically when she was trying to save Jillian's life. And neither of them could have done this by themselves, Mm -hmm. seemingly, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe, maybe they could. It wasn't through seemingly magical happenings that the curse quote unquote just got broken. Mm -hmm. They, it was through their choices. Mm -hmm. And I love that these sisters just kind of kept loving each other, no matter how kind of far apart, you know, Jillian wanted to be physically and Sally wanted to be like in her lifestyle. There was some light judgment and like some very backhanded slut shaming that was fun over margaritas, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but these sisters never expected the other to do anything different than just like be themselves with that bond, that non-judgmental bond and that communion that they had together. They were able to make that final decision of like, you know what, fuck it all I am here to to help you save yourself. I am here to do whatever it takes. And we're doing this together. And it's that aggressive self-love, right? Mm-hmm. These sisters loved each other aggressively. And the aunts loved them aggressively as well in their own way mm-hmm. to open up their house, right? Open up their safe space and bring all of the women in. It was through this decision-making that they fully realized their magic. And it's, I have this image that Maria Owen's magic in the beginning and Jillian and Sally's magic in the end, they're bookends. And it's like, we're not really seeing anything but one spell play itself out. Mm. It was a nice bookend of a spell. Yes, I love that reading. It occurs to me that we need to mention just the sheer aesthetics of this movie because it existing as kind of a tonal combination of little women and pet cemetery (laughs) is just incredible. I love I love it. I love that for us. You know, the characters live in this house, which is like the little girl's dream of a big Victorian house. And which also as an adult, I was watching this like, you know, like I know they're the town outcasts, but like Mm -hmm. they're living in a Martha Stewart house. So like in that 90s way, everyone's fine. Everyone's absolutely fine financially and like has beautiful things around them at all times. But yeah, a thought that I keep coming back to around the concept of trauma and healing is that like. I guess it's not that love is the source of the pain and love is the solution. It's that relationships are the source of the pain often and relationships are the solution. Mm. And then love is the difference. 
between those two. But I think it's sort of just the bravery of continuing to feel and to love (laughs) and returning to that. Like that feels like one of the themes here. And also just, you know, that we have these sisters who are in this dyad that we often see in media. And then I think kind of play out in our real lives and the way that we imagine ourselves as archetypes sometimes of like the responsible one and the fuck up and how we get to explore like Mm -hmm. how it's hard to be in either position. It's hard to be the glamorous fuck up. It's hard to be the one who has it all together because having it together can be a way of masking your own vulnerability too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think these conversations about like growth and like generational growth and this stuff are always all well and good and they're very important. But like when we're talking about like marginalized people in any mm-hmm. sort of power structure, yeah. like a lot of people are like, this is a great conversation, but like you got to get the boot off my neck. Like that is an important thing that needs yeah. to happen. Like we can talk about it, but like you, it's good for you to show up in particular mm-hmm. ways, but it's also really important for you to show up for us to sort of undo this this power structure and so that it can go beyond rhetoric for more than just sort of a, a relatively small number of people. It goes beyond the individual. Absolutely. Not rhetoric. I don't mean to dismiss it like that, but it can go beyond just like a conversation, conceptual conversation. And I do like, again, like some of these may be stretches. I don't want it to be, mm-hmm. but the, uh, I asked like, why does the town show up? Like, why do these women show up for this? The women who help flesh out the coven when they need the women to come and they historically have been really not great to the witches we hear Mm -hmm. from at least one of them that they've always wanted to kind of like be a part of something like that or just to see inside the house i don't know if they even say they want to be part of anything Yes, you're right. Someone said they always wanted to see this inside the house, but Bojack Horseman's own Margot Martindale oh, right. says that she always thought she was like a little bit of a witch because right. she could felt something, whatever. But yeah. I love, even though it does not make a ton of sense to me why they show up, I love that they do show up because it suggests that, again, it's well and good that you need to heal individually, you need to heal generationally, but that is not a thing that you can do on your own and you need buy-in from some of the oppressive forces that exist structurally in your life and not just like a nod or like, we'll celebrate you on this day. Mm -hmm. You need actual cultural and community participation from many people involved. If you want it to go beyond just being like, I think I'm going to change, you know, you need a lot to happen. That is fantastic. I also love how they invite the phone tree women, the PTA moms, basically. (laughs) They use the phone tree. (laughs) They use the phone tree that Sally has never gotten to be at the top of except by magic. And then how they're like, Jillian has a really bad ex-boyfriend and he won't leave her alone. And so it's like, which is the kind of spell that I would have been invited to participate in when I lived in Winona, Minnesota. (laughs) And then they get there and it becomes apparent that they're actually doing an exorcism of a knowable, seeable CGI ghost, which is incredible. (laughs) They're all cool with it. (laughs) They take it like absolute champs. They're like, we have confirmed the existence (laughs) of spirits and we are proceeding. (laughs) They keep going. Because they're all working on... You know, one of them says, I wonder if this would work on my ex-husband, you know, just like the vague ask of like, there's a man who's making life difficult for this woman. Like, I feel like that's like enough of an ask to be like, I don't need to fill you in on the details, but like, I need you to show up. Yeah. And that's a really kind of beautiful thing. Like, I need you to show up and people do show up. And then when they see that the task is much bigger than they expected it would be. They don't turn. They're like, I showed up for this because they're showing up for themselves too, you know? Yeah. Hmm. As somebody who, you know, has gone from like coloring inside the lines sector, you know, I was a nurse for 10 years, you know, went to church. I got the husband. I had the 2.5 kids and too many cats and I was doing everything very expectedly, very beige. And then I got sick and In order to heal my body, I had to stop doing a lot of those very expected safe things and start doing what I wanted to do, which ended up being comparatively kind of out there. And as I have been on that trajectory the past 10 plus years, I've encountered a lot of people, most of them women, who when I open up to them about kind of the weirdness or the out there-ness... There is 
always like a kernel of like, oh, I wish I could do that. This movie sets us up with the witch as an archetype of quote unquote, the outsiders, right? Because in the movie, it's the witches who are the outsiders. But from our frame, from our perspective, as we view the movie, the witches are the insiders and everybody else are the outsiders. And the experience of that is that these non-witches, there is something inside of them that is attracted to these you know, literal outsiders, the witches. And applying that to real life, I think what we respond to and are curious about are people who live freely and people who are able to take their life into their own hands and stare conformity in the face, stare their own fear in the face. And that's very attractive to people who are, when they're real with themselves, they are in that meat suit and they want to be out of the meat suit and they don't know how to get out of the Mm -hmm. meat suit. So instead of like attaching it, well, I'm a witch and you need to do potions and you need to work with the moon and you need to do crystals. You need to do this and that. It's like, no, find your own thing. This happens to work for me this year, right? It changes Mm -hmm. every season. It changes a little bit because I'm a changeable person. Everybody is. You are attracted to somebody who is following their own path. So your work is to love yourself (laughs) enough to do that hard work that we've been talking about for the past hour and your path appears Mm. and your path isn't anything mystical. It's just what you're fucking interested in. It's what makes you feel like you're more of yourself until the very end when it's like, not only the witches were, were they deciding to encounter destiny instead of fate by responding, Mm. the community was also like, you know what, let's do things differently. Fuck it. Let's do mm. things differently. Let's pour marinara on our axe's grave. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you create fear in people, then it's probably also because you are showing them something that they're afraid of seeing in themselves for whatever reason. And one of those could be the, you know, the possibility of greater healing if you bust out of your tiny little lobster suit mm. big lobster in a little <laughs> cove big lobster in a little cove <laughs> just had to do that i'm sorry great visual and aunt um not jet stalker channing. channing yes thank you i only know their real names I don't know names in the movies. <laughs> she was saying there's no devil in what we do. There's no devil in the craft, mm-hmm. she says. Right. I don't know if that was pulled from the book, but I thought that especially kind of paralleling this along satanic panic, immediately post satanic panic in the US, I appreciated it. I appreciated it too. The devil's the guy. Yes, the devil's the boyfriend. And to bring it in, Sarah knows I've been burning to talk about this, but like Griffin Dunn, who made this movie, his sister was strangled to death. Yeah. I can't help but think about that throughout so much of this movie, through the theme of this movie, throughout the fact that that is the attack that Jimmy the cowboy vampire attempts in the back of the car. You know, the devil is not in the camaraderie between women or non Jimmy. <laughs> Actually, that camaraderie is like where the light is. Yeah. The darkness is like in this unregulated monster yeah. in this particular situation. I mean, Alex, it didn't occur to me until this conversation that, yeah, we're talking about interrupting someone in the act of strangling a woman. And also that like when they have to kill him for real, he's saying, I want you to be my wife, which right. feels so connected to just this thing that I think people didn't get, you know, around Dominique Dunn's murder in the early 80s and I think don't really get now for the most part that like (laughs) that's not love Mm. and this idea of a crime of passion where you're so obsessed with somebody that you can't let them live like that's not this romantic thing that's abuse and the death of a woman in these stories is like the obvious end result of a pattern of abuse the world that we live in doesn't recognize that or care about it and I think To me, there was also something about this movie that I know I responded to as a tween when I first saw it and still respond to of like, yes, like we should break intergenerational curses and Sandra Bullock should be able to marry whoever she wants. And if that's Aiden Quinn, then great. But also like, boy, a family without men, that would really love that, (laughs) would love to have that. (laughs) A family without Jimmy's, I should say. And the issue is that there are a lot of 
a lot of men who who have families are jimmies. Yeah. Yeah. I've been on a Scorsese bender the last couple of weeks. And like, there's yes. a, there's a lot of jimmies <laughs> in yeah. all the Scorsese movies <laughs> that again is one of the things that I just really appreciate about this movie is that it takes some really intense, deep, wonderful things that we have to deal with as humans. And it ties it up so beautifully, I, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so seductively. Yeah. For me, it's a sed- I can't stop looking at the movie. It's like deal with your trauma. It'll be aesthetic. Yes. <laughs> I can't stop looking at Sally and Jillian's hair right. and it soothes me. So when I'm soothed, when that nervous system is soothed, I can receive actually the deeper mm. messages and I'm not kind of trying to fight anything. So I appreciate Griffin Dunn for his role in that and Robin Swickard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is a nice testament to how like this clearly is a movie that involves a lot of compromise and apparently a lot of studio interference. And like, (laughs) it's weird tonally. I think it got mixed reviews when it came out. But like, I fucking love it. We fucking love it. It's very imperfect. And yet it's also very perfect. And I feel like just if you ask you know, certainly any millennial woman, there's like a very good chance that they'll sort of go like this Mm. when they get to put their hands on their heart if they're asked to talk about practical magic. And I do feel like that's because that message is there and it's real. I do feel like it's the most fascinating, like just knowing the biographical detail. Sarah and I have talked about Dominic Dunn. Mm -hmm. The dad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to put together the family tree here. Griffin's dad, Dominique's dad, Jones brother-in-law yes the reason he comes up a lot is like i think a lot about the fact that like dominique dunn was strangled her dad pivoted on a sort of a bad part of his career as a television producer to becoming a crime journalist Mm -hmm. by writing an article about what had happened to his daughter and that what the family saw as a miscarriage of justice uh, mm-hmm. in that process. And then that thing that happened, this terrible thing that happened, this murder kicked off very different pathways in that family mm. with regard to like what happened with that family. And Dominic went down that direction and ended up shaping like, you know, it was like instrumental in the, the OJ trial, like yeah. shaping how we think about and talk about celebrity, how we think about, talk about crime. Like there's a lot that happened there. And then Griffin, you know, went on to be a movie star Mm -hmm. and lived kind of in the public in a way that I think about a lot where it's like, if your sister was also becoming a movie star, she didn't get to be a movie star. You ended up sort of doing this. I imagine that weighs on you a lot. Mm -hmm. And to think that that was processed in part, and this is entirely projection because I don't know this. I haven't found interviews where he speaks to this, but in part by making practical magic, like a movie that, is beloved by many and, yeah. and addresses these things while all to your wonderful points addresses them while being a totally warm mm-hmm. film that like, I think like a lot of people wouldn't associate with a person processing the you know decade and a half old grief regarding like what went on with your sister in a really tragic way. It's remarkable what we do as humans to yeah. process grief in one way or another, or to address injustice in our lives and it's not always like a one for one thing like sometimes it's through the things that we make that's a reason why i find like the dna at least the cultural and documentary dna of this movie to be fascinating right and that you can process grief in a way that is warm and inviting and again like to me i feel like this is one of those movies that exists as a safe space for people right like a lot of girls, a lot mm. of women, a lot of non-men, a lot of non-Jimmies and survivors of Jimmies. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and the, I love that because the story here, I think it's like a nice companion piece to Thelma and Louise, honestly. Because this story is like sometimes when you're a woman, you have to kill a guy and then everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a vision of justice that is so radical because it's so fluffy. Like, I guess we don't talk enough about the fact that, like, this is about killing someone <laughs> and the law being like, all right. <laughs> well, and again, like an instrumental part of the story of Dominique Dunn's murder is like the killer didn't get a lot of time no. because of sort of like there's a lot of different reasons, but didn't get a lot of time. And like this movie imagines... You know, what if the person with the hands on their neck got to kill the person and get away with it? Yeah. yeah. And kill him multiple times, actually. <laughs> kill him multiple times. By the way, I, w- I can't believe this hasn't 
I mean, I know that this is not a plot point for anyone else. I can understand why it hasn't come up, but they talk a lot about this shop that reminds me of the Rose Apothecary shop from Schitt's Creek. Yeah, Their shop looks exactly like that. It's like the same it sort does. of vibe, but they sell placenta there. Yeah. Placenta bar. <laughs> yes. Sheep placenta. And I, as a kid, grew up with no money and people are like, oh, I, I grew up poor. It's like, no, we free lunch, government assistance, stuff like that. My dad would buy expired things at a shop called Martin's, which people in Maine would mm-hmm. know, it, which I always describe as like, it's like if after the apocalypse, someone reconstructed a Walmart from memory. <laughs> And they they sold a shampoo that you could buy for 69 cents and it was bright pink and a clear bottle that just said in like stamp letters placenta. Ah, no, I did not think that was where that was going. And that is a shampoo we had. And I was I never complained about anything the way that we experienced not having stuff. I never complained about anything and I complained about many other things, but I never complained about anything in that context. But I was like, my friends come over. We cannot have a bottle of scented shampoo that smells like perfume that just says placenta on it. I can't, we can't do that. Fair. And it, it looked like the goo from Ghostbusters too. That's what it looked like. And the irony is that today, I'm sure there are people who are paying like $85 to buy placenta shampoo on Instagram. Definitely. Hell yeah. My dad was ahead of it. He was ahead of it. Yeah, he was. <laughs> there are no dads in the Owens family. They reproduce without men. I know that technically they need them. <laughs> for sperm but like whatever it's an unbroken matriarchal family tree i love that so in a generally dadless world except for that guy we saw on the beach for a second and the (laughs) ophthalmologist from sex in the city who is the daddy Mm. for me i'm going to quote one of the daughters Mm -hmm. of sally where she says clean up your own mess and she was quoting the aunts And to me, the aunts are the daddy in this movie because number one, it's Diane Weist and Stockard fucking Channing. Mm -hmm. When they are in a room, nobody else is the daddy. I love that. That's great. Alex? I wouldn't have handpicked a duo being Stockard Channing and Diane Weist, and it works so well. I agree that they are the daddy. I love when (laughs) Diane Weist says, the nudity is optional, as you'll remember. (laughs) As you'll remember. There's just something about her approach in everything that is so magical. And then to have them as the sugar and spice, you know, or the salty and the sweet. Yeah. It is beautiful. And and, uh, to your point, Sam Pretty from earlier, they've opened the home to these children to nourish them and they're the aspirational daddy. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I will just add for variety, Robin Swickord and Mm -hmm. Griffin Dunn, because like, what a beautiful thing to create a movie in the 1990s that non-male identified human beings can wholeheartedly enjoy. Mm. I don't know. I'm impressed. I think this is a testament to how much you can do even in a situation where you have to compromise a lot. I'm proud of everybody. Mm-hmm. Sam Pretty, where do people find you? Oh, well, when this episode drops, I will have a brand spanking new website. And that is astrogeomantica.net. And that's A-S-T-R-O-G-E-O-M-A-N-T-I-C-A. And there you can find all of my offerings as an astrologer, as somebody to help you through the tangled web of human design. You'll see my podcast appearances or you can get to listen to those. I'm also dropping a newsletter about twice a month talking us through the transits and anything that, you know, turns me on. I'm also on Instagram at Sam Life and that is it. Cool. We'll link to the thing so people can click on it and go to there. Thanks. We don't even click anymore. We need to say so people can touch it. I know. I I said something about clicking the other day and I was like, I should revise this. The clicking isn't even a thing. And it felt weird. Yeah. Maybe a tap? Tap, yeah. You can tap it. Do you tap that yeah. link? Tap, tap it. here. <laughs> tap that link. Thank you so much. This is a delight. Yeah, this was so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you guys. All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of You Are Good, 
of Feelings Podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lash for providing the beats, which make all of our transitions sound great. Thank you so much for everything you do, Lash. Thanks to you for listening to the show. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. You can find us in bonus episodes at Patreon.com slash YouAreGood. Next week, we're going to talk about Empire Records with our great friend Nico Stratus. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. You are good.